Lately, my wife and I have been watching this reality show called Making the Cut. It is a competition among fashion designers uh, hosted by Heidi Klum. It is very dumb. <laughs> it is a very silly and dumb show, but it's pretty entertaining. I think uh, Joanna, for her part, loves nothing in this world so much as a working hard montage and making the cut is like 65% working hard montages. So that, uh, that's a, you know, that seals the deal for her. Uh, for my part, I think I, I do find, I do take pleasure in watching people work to try to make something pretty and then uh, uh, compare pretty things to less pretty things. Uh, so and maybe, maybe I just haven't watched as much reality television, so I'm more susceptible to its wiles, not having uh, not having had all of my my uh, reality TV neurotransmitter receptors dulled by uh, decades of abuse. In any case, we, we we've been watching this show, and there's. So the, the the working hard montages are are are, uh, are great, and then there's a judgment and discussion of you know the virtues and, and, and deficiencies of the various designs. That's and that's entertaining enough. The part that is of course the worst part of the show, the part that I just I cannot stand, is the designers' statements about their work. It is whether they're trying to articulate their brand which is unfortunately a big part of the show, or they're simply trying to offer a, a, an, an apology or a defense of their design choices. It's all just worthless nonsense. I mean, it is truly word salad. Uh, you know, this, my brand is really all about foregrounding opportunity and uh, you know, value is really at the center of what we do here. What our brand is really saying is this is for everybody, but everybody deserves something extraordinary. It's just total oatmeal. I mean, there's, it, is, it is total verbal uh, hash. There's no actual denotative value to any of it. And it's really painful to listen to because the the judges and the designers themselves take it really seriously. It's just a statement-shaped pile of words. And, and they, they, they take really seriously this presentation. And so, you know, you sit through that and then you get to watch some cool uh, runway shows. The thing that, that made... Um, the, th the reason I'm bringing this show up right now is... The, the other night during one of the, the competitions that they were assigned to create a little video, sort of a commercial for their clothes. And in one of them, a, one of the designers had an idea to, to, to do some painting on clothes. It was sort of an interesting video, but he thought to accompany the visual design of the video, he would, for the audio track, he wanted some sort of poetry, is what he said. He, he turned to his two models, who looked all of 19, <laughs> and he said, uh, do you, do, 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 does either of you write poetry? 
<laughs> and one of them, one of them said, sure. So, so he got one of his uh, young models to write some poems, to write a poem, to write a poem for that occasion. Actually it was, it was for that particular occasion. So the, so that night she wrote down something like a poem and they recorded her reading it and uh, added it to the video and everybody loved it. It, it served the purpose just fine. It had, it wasn't read in poetry voice, thankfully, but it had a, a kind of a serious cadence and a little bit of a, a faint rhythm or at least rhythm in the presentation and uh, a little, you know, a, a whisper of rhyme here and there, internal or otherwise. And it it was basically in, in terms of content and even uh, Form it was, I would say, very. I would say it was basically a, a an extremely watered down version of Maya Angelou's Phenomenal Woman. That that's what I heard at least. It was fine, and everybody loved it. It was very successful. It complemented the 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 visual element of the commercial uh, just perfectly. And it was it was sort of a series of self affirmations, uh, either said in the first or the, the second person. You are beautiful. You are important. I think the, the ending line was "I am." Fine, good, no problem. I I have no real objection to that. Certainly, I I I have no desire to shit on the very young model or the uh, totally charming but uh, uh, poetically. Uh, ill-informed designer, you know, it, it, he, he had a brief moment of panic before he, he thought to ask his models to write the poem for him when he, he, he thought he was going to have to write something himself. And, you know, of course, what, what didn't even cross anybody's mind was the thousands upon thousands of immortal lines of public domain English poetry already widely available at the, at the you know, <laughs> the, the simplest of Google searches. <laughs> but great, great lines from poems. I mean, we'll bring you God knows what, uh, you know, what tr treasure troves from Shakespeare, from the Romantics, from uh, fucking Yeats, you know, how it, there's, <laughs> it never crossed anybody's mind that he might just use something that was already really good. Because, of course, as with the designer statements and the brand declarations, all that was really wanted here was something sort of poem-shaped, was a kind of, was, was poetic filler, right? And that's really what it was. It was, a there was a, um, a, a study... I think I may have mentioned this in a, in a review I wrote at some point, but there was a sociological study I read about in college in which uh, office workers were who, who had to line up at a copy machine. They were they were tested. They had uh, a researchers um, infiltrate as as a, you know, pretending to be assistants or interns, and they would ask to cut in line at the copy machine, and and some of them would say. Uh, oh, can I cut in line? And and the answer to that was typically no. But then, but then another set of them would ask, oh, can I cut in line? I need to make copies. And the answer to that was almost always yes. That is, people didn't really need to hear an actual reason. They just needed to hear something that was reason-shaped. 
what the researchers called a placebo reason. And that's what this model's poem was. It was a placebo poem. It sounded poem-like. She said it very well. It had some of the cadences that we vaguely recognize from uh, sort of the, the uplifting, uh, vaguely Christianity-inflected spoken word tradition, I guess. It had a little bit of that feel to it. And uh, it was very positive. It also sounded a little bit like uh, some, some YouTube, uh, some affirmative YouTube videos that, that one encounters. It was very warm and it, 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 uh, it did nothing but fulfill a, a poem shaped, to, it filled a poem shaped void in the video. And that was just fine. And you know, I can just, I can imagine not that there would be any call for this, but I can imagine that if you gave me a, a good night to work and a little bit of materials, I, you know, I, uh, a thousand years ago, I did a, a, a tiny bit of modeling and I, I, I sold clothes for a little bit and I studied costume design for a semester in college and I worked in a, uh, a, a costume shop for a second in graduate school, and I use a needle and thread to, to, to fix things around the house sometimes. So, you know, I think if I really, really had to, gun to my head, I could overnight probably take some cloth and some thread, and I could produce something that would, from a distance, look convincingly like an article of clothing. It Now, needless to say, it would not be well made. It would not be pretty, it would very likely fall apart <laughs> upon being put on somebody's body, but you know, it would pass as a kind of a placebo article of clothing. And you know, maybe there's some sort of community theater situation or God knows some sort of bizarre poetry reading in which that might even be warranted. Maybe uh, more likely some uh, play that my daughter will be in at some point where I will have to, at the last minute, fix some kind of costume. So, you know, that's fine. And in a context in which it's not all about costuming, who cares? Good. Fine. So again, I have no real complaint about the model and her placebo poem. But I think the reason that this sort of stuck with me, the reason I couldn't quite get this odd little moment from this episode out of my head, it, it took it took a little bit of time, but I, I was walking to get the mail tonight. We have, Our mailboxes are all set up at a, a gazebo in the middle of the neighborhood. So I had to walk, walk up to the gazebo to get our mail. And uh, there was very little there uh, other than a New Yorker. And flipping through the New Yorker, it, I remembered something that I think it was Nicholson Baker said about the poems in the New Yorker. Uh, it's also true for the the uh, many of the cartoons in the New Yorker, which is that their real purpose is to fill out magazine space. It's to uh, to punctuate the shape of the page in a way that seems pleasing to the eye. That the 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 poems serve almost exactly the same function as the little doodles, right? Apart from the cartoons, there actually are little little squiggly, tiny, tiny figures, tiny drawings that, that somebody, you know, uh, puts in and they use to fill out the page in the New Yorker. And poems do basically that same thing, that really the, the purpose of the poem is to be poem shaped. 
And, th and I think that's what really started to get to me as I realized, oh, it's not that in the reality show Making the Cut, which is all about fashion, a commercial that is all about fashion, it's not that in that context, the only real thing that a poem needs to do is be poem shaped. It's that that's every context. It's that it's actually very difficult to think of a context in which poetry appears where that is not what is called for. Now, it might not be the same kind of poetry. Not the same, the same kind of placebo poem might not do the trick. But I think that if you, if you were to read the model's poem in a poetry workshop, the reason that it would be that it would not pass muster isn't necessarily that it would be a worse poem than one that would. It's just that it it uh, it ticks the wrong boxes. It doesn't follow the right set of etiquette. You know, if you presented it and presented it very well at a spoken word reading, maybe that maybe it would pass there. At the 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 MFA workshop, if you read. Uh, some some lines of John Ashbery, even if nobody necessarily could follow a lick of it, that that will uh, that will tick the right boxes for that situation, right? Because of course, if you read if you read Ogden Nash during the designer's uh, fashion commercial, that would not do the trick. Right? <laughs> that would not quite work the same way. If you read uh, Hausman's uh, here, what is it? Here, here, dead lie we because we did not choose to live and shame the land from which we sprung. Life, to be sure, is nothing much to lose, but young men think it is, and we were young. Oh, there's my daughter. I gotta go check on her. I'll be back in just a moment. Sorry, I had to run. Uh, tuck my daughter back in. She had a bad dream. But I guess what I'm what I'm getting at is not that in a situation that calls for a poem shaped placebo. It's not that anything will do, right? There are certain certain patterns that are called for in some cases and not in others. I think my, my point, my point is not that anything would do. It's that what, what does do, right? What does fit, fit in, what does fill the poem-shaped void? What does function as a I need to make copies placebo excuse is is functioning that way not by actually doing anything right that's what a placebo is what a medical placebo is it it, it has to be something it, and, and it's not that anything will do right it has to be pill shaped it has to be plausible but Whatever effect it has, it doesn't have by actually doing anything, by actually functioning. It's just a sugar pill. It's just a poem-shaped collection of words. And I, I guess that's really what made me a little sad. Not that I wanted there to be a real poem recorded in the background of that fashion commercial. And not that I even want there to be a poetry world making the cut, which would probably be totally insufferable. <laughs> I mean, insofar as there is something like that, best American poetry, it's, it's already just a sort of a mess as it is. But I guess, 
I would love for there to be more occasions when what was called for was not just a poem-shaped placebo, but was actually a poem that functioned not by fulfilling our expectations within context for what a poem ought to resemble at a distance. I would love for there to be more occasions in which a poem was called upon to function as a poem. And right now, at least, it's pretty fucking hard to think of any. Hey everybody, it's Matthew and this is Slee Ricketts. Thank you for listening. Go if you have a chance right now to Apple Podcasts or to whatever distributor that you're getting this podcast through and uh, give the show a rating. Give it a, a good rating, give it a review, subscribe to it. It helps a lot. I appreciate it. And please do write in to sleericketts at gmail.com. I've got a lot of stuff to talk about this week, but it's it's sort of it's um it may be too much all at once, and so I suspect I'm going to have to break it up into a couple weeks of discussion, partly to accommodate all the material and partly to get my head straight about all of it because there's a lot to it's been a lot to think about. So this may be a little bit of a miscellany this week, and it may also be a little bit of a extra dumb pop culture heavy episode for which I apologize, I guess. But last week was a very sophisticated, highbrow, and a delightful episode with Shashi Bhatt that uh, lots of people seem to especially enjoy. So I'm very glad to have heard that. And I feel licensed this week to be extra lazy. I did, so I did get a lot of correspondence this week, mostly just sort of nice short stuff, and I'm grateful for all of it. I welcome all of it. Uh, most unremarkable, predictable, and just utterly boring was, oh, good God, another week, another brilliant and penetratingly insightful email from Cameron. I mean, for fuck's sake, it's just... It's getting, uh, it's getting a little ridiculous now. I think that like, down the road, when I've really totally sold out, I think you know when I'm when I've got like an online merch store full of like branded Slee Ricketts butt plugs and bump stocks, and I'm like reading ad copy for Goldman Sachs and the CIA. I think I think like around maybe like Slee Ricketts episode. 100. I think for for the big uh, episode 100 spectacular, I'm just going to have a a, a a reveal that Cameron, my precocious 17-year-old British listener, was actually just an elaborate prank conducted by Ben Lerner and the collective faculty of Brooklyn College uh, in an effort to own me on my own podcast and make me look as stupid as I am. In which case, I mean, I really, uh, hats off, Ben, because 
Uh, Cameron is <laughs> smart as shit. I, I may not actually get to Cameron's email itself this week because there is a lot to dig into there, but it is a smart one and I will get to it at some point. I also want to, I want to follow up quickly on a, so last week uh, in my conversation with Shashi, and it was a great uh, conversation, so please do go listen to it if you haven't yet. That's just the previous episode, 16, with Shashi Bhatt. The, uh, very briefly, the recent HBO Woodstock 99 documentary came up in our conversation. So I did end up seeing the documentary. And as Shashi suggested, I think she was had been had watched part of it when we spoke. As, as, uh, as she suggested, it is full of documentation of really horrifying and atrocious behavior. I did, though, want to follow up and say that in addition to that, which is unquestionable, I I found the documentary itself to be um, <laughs> not impressive. It's not my favorite documentary. It was it managed to be sort of both moralizing and morally incoherent at once and it seemed to put forth whenever there was a clear moral argument that it put forth it was a an odious and repugnant one so just just for the record i i i have i feel obliged to say that the argument that rock and roll makes people do bad things was lazy, backward, and tired around the turn of the third century when Tertullian was making it in the declining Roman Empire. And it's certainly uh, tired and lazy today. Not to mention that it, it's, it's the, the argument in the, in the documentary is basically just a, a recapitulation of the same bullshit that people were saying about the Columbine killers and KMFDM and Marilyn Manson in 1999 when all this shit took place. So thank you to Shashi for recommending it as a, as a, as a document of history. It is a strange and uh, upsetting collection of events, but a big thumbs down to HBO Max for greenlighting this documentary in this form. Really, really poor job. And there's, I think, a, a very... Uh, concise and entertainingly insightful analysis of the documentary on a recent episode of Struggle Session, which is a a leftist nerd culture podcast that I listened to. They did, I think, a, a pretty good job and have much smarter things to say about it than I do, and, and cover a lot more of the different angles. Uh, so so the, I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And it is, uh, so Struggle Session, I suspect, will come up again in another episode I'm planning right now. I'm planning an episode that I think is going to be a lot of fun with a comic book artist. And they, they talk a lot about comic books on Struggle Session. So I, I think that may come up again then, but that is something definitely to look forward to. Since we are talking about podcasts, since I am in my state of high distraction and overstimulation, uh, I'll mention that I, I've also, also dumbly on my mind, 
has been the most recent episode of Very Bad Wizards, which is a another also very nerdy podcast, but one uh, in which a a an, a philosopher and a psychologist argue about philosophy and psychology. It tends to be pretty smart and pretty entertaining in, in much the same way as uh like Shelley Kagan's death lecture series on um the the that uh, Yale made available on iTunes so I, I which is to say as with all of these things I I often disagree but am uh am, am just as often entertained and, and delighted I I have to say though that they really really dropped the ball in their most recent episode because they take on in the very just in the opening segment a a fascinating question and one I have been honestly no bullshit I have been wrestling with this question for years now and and they picked it up and proposed to resolve it in the course of like a 10 minute intro segment so i was really excited to finally have this mystery solved and they just absolutely fucking whiffed i mean just just no contact at all i mean i think they were completely completely off base so this question that has genuinely <laughs> occupied hours of my thought in the last several years is the question what is corniness? What is corniness? Now, like uh, pornography, we know it when we see it, but it is it is harder than one might think to put one's finger on. Now, on Very Bad Wizards, their their proposed definition, they 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 made some not incidental observations about lameness as being an overlapping category and about this question of originality. But I think their, their final definition was totally unacceptable. Their final definition was that corniness is a sincere attempt to be cool that completely fails. And I mean, I think apart from being really not a satisfactory definition by, by almost any measure, it, it basically defers the whole question of what corniness is onto the question of what coolness is, right? So they basically just force, they, they, they dodge the hard work of defining the damn term and say, well, it's a, it's a failed attempt, attempt at coolness, whatever that is. So I think just to start out, the there's a there's a, a very powerful and I would say uh, decisive counterexample that I can offer that that demonstrates just to begin with why their definition is so utterly misconceived. And this counterexample is they even mention this at some point, but they seem not quite to digest it. That his counterexample, very simply put, is the dad joke. Now, there are plenty of different examples of dad jokes that might be said to be sincere attempts at coolness that fall flat. But as I know 
and have known for the past seven years. And as both of these guys should certainly know, being dads themselves, at least half of the time, at least half of the time, a dad joke, the pleasure, in fact, of making a dad joke is knowing that you are making a dad joke. That is, you say something corny partly because it is corny. You want to elicit a groan from your child. That's what's fun about it. So maybe not every dad joke, but at least a, a very large portion of dad jokes absolutely defy their definition because they are not a sincere attempt to be cool. They are willingly, they are knowingly and willfully not cool. They are corny for the sake of being corny. And I have to say that if your definition of corniness cannot include the dad joke, then it is not a functional definition of corniness. Now, I, I, I you know, I was grateful for their discussion because it at least made me it brought the question back to mind and made me put a little more work into trying to narrow down what I thought of corniness. I do think that they they put too much emphasis on the use of corniness of the the on the use of the the derogatory term corny in hip hop. That is, you know, as an MC, one of the worst things you can be called is corny. And they, they identify that part of this has to do with a lack of originality. And of course, in hip hop, part of what is the, you know, part of the game is being cool. And so their definition might, might function if it were limited to that use of the word corny. But I think that there, I think that there are I think there's at least the possibility of another of, of another definition that would include uh, the use in the use among MCs, as well as the use among uh, uh, embarrassed daughters of dads. I think that the 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 I, I, the working definition I have at the moment, the working definition I have at the moment is that corniness is and I, this is a this is a, a limited definition I, I already know there are some some problems so all right so I, 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 this is a partial definition but i think it's, it's a hell of a lot closer than than, than the, the very bad wizards got much as i love them by the way great podcast i totally recommend it but they were very wrong on this point um so I, I think my definition at the moment, my, or my working definition, is that corniness is provocation without risk. Or maybe a better way to put it would be provocation without experiment. And I guess what I mean by provocation is that it's not just saying something, right? It's not just, I think like, so lameness is when you try to do something cool and it falls flat. That's actually, I think, what they are defining when they, they, they say they're defining corniness. I think that's actually lameness. I think staleness is when something falls flat because it is old, right? But I think that if you add another wrinkle to that, 
I think that corniness always involves a sort of staleness, right? I think they were right when they, they nodded at the question of originality. I think corniness is always not really original. It, 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 it either is, is totally boilerplate. It either is borrowed and old and corny for that reason, or it is so formulaic as to involve no risk, no real experiment. Now, the reason I say provocation rather than like expression is that, you know, you can say, I love you to your spouse. And that is, there's no experiment there, but there's also not really a provocation. It's, it's just an expression and it's not corny. But, you know, I think if you... If you say roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you, that's corny, right? Because you're not just trying to express something. You are uh, presenting a little rhyming, jokey riddle, which is, of course, so old and so familiar that it doesn't do any real work. There's no discovery. There's no risk. There's no experiment. But it is meant to, it is, the formula is meant to elicit a, response of some kind, right? You know, a joke is structured so as to elicit a, a laugh, right? And when there is no risk and no experiment in that joke, it it performs the invitation to the laugh, but it doesn't it doesn't earn it because there is nothing new there. So I do think that that's that's really pretty close to the heart of corniness. The reason I feel not totally satisfied is that I think it doesn't sufficiently exclude things like violence, right? Like a, a punch in the nose. Well, it involves risk, I guess. It doesn't really involve much experiment and it is certainly a provocation. So I think maybe, maybe for a kludgy, inelegant working definition, I might say that Corniness is nonviolent provocation without experiment or without risk. Uh, so still working on it, but uh, I think I've gotten a hell of a lot further than the Very Bad Wizards. As I said, in fairness, I've had a good head start. <laughs> it's been something that has for some reason fascinated me for years. Uh, if you have uh, further insights into the question of corniness, please send them my way. A secondary question I've been working on is the question of the distinction between corniness and cheesiness. Now, cheesiness, I think, may involve some experiment or risk, but I don't think that's the only difference between cheesiness and corniness. I, I suspect there's something else there. And my instinct is that corniness may be I think corniness may be performed from a position of security, whereas cheesiness is maybe performed from a position of uncertainty. I'm not sure. I'm still, you know, still very much in the mists with that one. But if you have any insights, uh, please send them my way. Or if you prefer, just send an email saying, shut the fuck up about corniness. Let's get back to the poetry. So I think that is all of the utter, utter junk pop culture nonsense that I had to get into this week. I do want to, with a little more seriousness, talk about a really smart and thoughtful email that I got from 
future guest of the show, Andrew Palmer. Uh, his, his new book, The Bachelor, has just come out. It is beautiful and funny and really exquisitely made book. It is line by line about as well written as any piece of prose you're likely to encounter uh, anytime soon. So uh, I got a really smart email from Andrew about some things I said recently on the podcast and I I haven't totally figured out what I think about it, but I, I, I'm very glad that he wrote and it has given me a lot to chew on. So we will get into that in just one moment. Incidentally, it wasn't by accident that I failed to mention earlier when I was discussing the, the very bad and stupid HBO argument that rock and roll will steal your soul. It, it wasn't by accident that I didn't mention Plato's much-cited passage in The Republic in which he bars the poets from entering his ideal city. Boy, poets love to cite that passage. I mean, there is nothing that poets like more than being barred from Plato's ideal city. The reason I didn't cite it, and granted it has been a couple of years since I, I last read it, but my, my impression is that when he talks about poetry in that book, he's talking about the dangers of being entranced and of mistaking uh, the semblance for the reality. And so I, I, I really read his argument against poetry in the Republic as being sort of, you know, adjusted for historical context, something closer to an argument against TV and the internet, in which case he's probably pretty on point. So I, I, uh, I, I left him out, but I did include Tertullian, who definitely did <laughs> argue that if you if you listen to rock and roll effectively, you will uh, go to hell. In fairness to Tertullian, he also voiced in the same work on the spectacles, he, he also voiced the very much minority opinion that uh, uh, torturing, mutilating, and murdering human beings in a stadium for public entertainment was something to be frowned upon. So you have to give Tertullian credit where it's due. I want to get back to Andrew's email. I did since, you know, usually I end up recording the different segments of these episodes over the course of a couple nights. So since I last recorded, I had a really lovely conversation with Jonathan Farmer in which I discussed a little bit of what I wanted to talk about, including in particular Andrew's email. So I just wanted to acknowledge that if there if there are any especially dazzling insights in the in what follows they are almost certainly due to Jonathan's good influence and if I say anything especially terrible stupid or offensive then uh, that is all on me because Jonathan as I have mentioned before is a a wise and gentle giant who, you know, you can't tell from his author photo, but he, like Ryan Wilson, has the, the stature of a, 
of the guy who in the olden days you would elect to go and represent your village in single combat. Like the, both of those guys, like if they were not so friendly, would be terrifying. Uh, but all of which is to say, credit Jonathan with anything smart I am about to say and blame him for nothing. So Andrew, as I said, Andrew Palmer, really brilliant novelist. We are, we, I am going to get to interview him and talk with him about a couple of different things, including his new novel, The Bachelor, which is really fun, really a really good read. But he wrote me the other day in response to my comments on Ben Lerner's poem, The Lights, specifically. I did very graciously, he he then, I checked with him and he said he, he didn't at all mind my talking about this on the show. So I'm just going to read a, a, a little part of his email, really just the, the part that's pertinent to Lerner's poem, and then talk through some of my thoughts, some of which I think are fairly settled and some of which are still pretty up in the air. And maybe uh, y'all can help me work out what's what. So Andrew said of Lerner, he acknowledges that there's there's a lot of criticism of Lerner, um, not uh, unlikely because of his, his rapid ascent to quasi-literary stardom, as, as Andrew puts it, which seems very accurate. But your takedown, this is Andrew, but your takedown seemed to me in bad faith. Like maybe he actually has considered where to break his lines and what effect it has to break them where he does. I understand he's working in a different tradition than you and that you might reject this tradition, but it's still a tradition and it strikes me as willfully ignorant to pretend that he's just spewing lines out at random. And sure, anaphora makes any old thing sound good, but couldn't you say the same thing about iambic pentameter rhyme, etc. Anyway, I normally appreciate your crankiness on the pod, but this time it struck me as more performative than usual and made me feel defensive of Ben, much of whose work I love. So uh, thank, thank you, Andrew, for writing and for being so gracious as to let me talk some about this on the podcast. So uh, I want to start with the shortest and simplest of the, the number of different topics that came up here, which is just anaphora. And I think I think Andrew and I actually basically agree, which is that anaphora is a cheap but effective rhetorical trick. I think what I said on that podcast was, on that episode, I think what I said on that episode was that as every mediocre public speaker knows, anaphora is the easiest way to build rhetorical momentum. I think that's true. And of course, Anaphora is fairly easy to do, but it is effective and lots of very good as well as very mediocre poems use it. So I actually think, as I believe I said, that uh, the last section of Lerner's poem works pretty well and the anaphora is, is effective there. It is not hard to do, but it's still, it still packs a punch. Similarly, you know, uh, as, as Andrew suggests, uh, uh, pentameter and rhyme or, or meter and rhyme more broadly are, are maybe just as much of a, you know, maybe that's as much of a cheap trick as anaphora is. And I think I basically agree that I think, and I think, you know, to be a little bit nitpicky, I think writing in regular meter and rhyme is a little bit more technically demanding than writing anaphoric lines. But, you know, broadly speaking, yes, um, it is very easy to write something in regular meter and rhyme in a way that makes it sound true, regardless of what it means, but just because the meter and the rhyme are so satisfying to our ears. So absolutely, 
there are plenty of prosodic and and uh, uh, metrical uh, or prosodic and rhetorical and other sound-based tricks that are exactly that. And uh, poets use them all the time for that reason. So I, I think we actually are basically in agreement on that. But I was I was grateful for the emphasis on anaphora, among other things, because I realized, and this has happened a couple times before, that often I will come away from one of these episodes with a very specific idea of what I have said, <laughs> or, or maybe in some cases it's of the tone of what I've said, and it has come across to other people very differently. So I think um, Brian uh, Placer, who's also exceedingly gracious, he took uh, from my episode on the sublime, I think he, he understood me to be saying that his work, uh, though it has its virtues, was incapable of achieving the sublime. That that's actually not at all what I, I meant to be saying, though I, I'm sure I was very unclear. I, I think what I what I meant to say was that uh, though God knows whose work is capable of the sublime, I thought that his anxieties as a writer tended to concern qualities other than the sublime. Though you know whether his work, my work, or anyone's actually ever achieves any of this. I, I can't guess. That's really what I meant. But as always, I I am glad to know how something I've said has come across to other people. So that's an anaphora. I you know another note then that's a relatively small point, but maybe again worth worth fleshing out was that he you know he he objected to my saying that Lerner had chosen his lines at random. And I think what I what I actually said was that he had, and I was speaking particularly about his line breaks, but really about the, the line and sentence breaks between or among the different uh, the different topics that he leaps between, both syntactically and denotatively across the whole poem. So I think what I said was that these breaks occur seemingly at whim, which is pretty fucking close to at random, but I realized I actually meant something a little bit different by that, though that may not at all have been clear. This is something that comes up, uh, I find a lot in contemporary poems. I, I find this all the time when I'm reading uh, poems in the slush pile. It, it, the, and this is this comes up in poems across every contemporary style of writing poems. Certainly this comes up all the time when I'm reading uh, you know, formal poetry or narrative poetry or, uh, you know, sort of uh, prosy poetry with line breaks, as well as some, you know, um, poetry that one might call avant-garde or, or these days even post-avant-garde. The, 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 the thing I take note of, and I, I had, a I think, a pretty good exchange with one of our editor, other editors, Armin, Davudian about this recently, though he may not want me mentioning it. I won't say anything. I, I, nothing, I will say nothing about what Armin said, though, though he, uh, he always says very smart things. And maybe I can lure him on the show at some point. So what I, I think I said to Armin, at least, was that I find a lot of the poems I read give the impression that the poet has absolutely given great consideration to every line, has worked very hard on all of the particular structure of the poem, on the, the individual word choices, on the sound, on the title. I, I, I absolutely get the impression with most of these poems that somebody has, has slaved over it. But 
I don't always get the impression, and in fact, I, I fairly infrequently get the impression that that labor involved an attempt to imagine the mind of the reader. So I think, I think of uh, uh, Elizabeth Bishop referred to the experience of writing poetry as a self-forgetful, perfectly useless concentration, which, by the way, is also the name of a, of a good book of essays by Alan Shapiro, a self-forgetful, perfectly useless concentration. And that is, she said, you know, the, the really the good of writing poetry was mostly just that, that it was good to do, that you could get lost in it in a way that had value for the writer and uh, fuck everybody else. And she was Elizabeth fucking Bishop, so it's hard to argue with her on that point. But I do think that there are a lot of poems I read, and this was one of them. The Lights by Ben Lerner was one of them, in which I, I, I certainly think the poet was smart and thoughtful and considerate and spent a lot of time and effort on the work. But I don't know that the, the you know, where, where I, I quibble maybe with Andrew is in this question of thinking about the effect, because I, I don't know that I would say I, I, I believe he thought a great deal about the effect. So I, I used at whim in a way that, that probably was misleading and, and, uh, and a little bit inaccurate. But I think I used that, I used that as a very uh, lazy way to refer to this getting lost in one's own head while writing, which is laborious. It certainly involves a lot of thought, but it doesn't necessarily involve a lot of communication, maybe is the word for it. So uh, I want to get to the rest of Andrew's email. The All right, so the most thorny... Okay, quick, quick, so... Very quickly, he does say that I was I was performative, and he mentions the um, uh, bad faith at some point. I I tend to, in my own writing and conversation, use the term bad faith mostly in a in a kind of an annoying existentialist way. But I I, I as I understand it's it's common use today, and and I think what Andrew intended here, my my understanding is that what he meant by that is that I was playing a different game than I was pretending to play. That when I was saying that I was offering criticism of Lerner, I was sort of really doing something else. And I think there's truth to that. He, he says it was more performative than usual. I would say everything on the podcast is absolutely performative. There's no question there. I am maybe too comfortable in the performative mode being, a, being an old uh, theater kid. But in either case, I, I, I totally cop to that. I, I don't think I was being dishonest, though. And I don't think I said anything that I don't mean. But there is a question of what, of what, I, what I'm doing when I talk about a poem on here. Sometimes it's very straightforward. I, am reading a, you know, I read a poem that I really love, and then I talk about some of what I love about it, and maybe even some of what I think is imperfect about it. But when I talk about poetry that I think is not good, or writing more generally that I think is not good. I am, I think I'm doing a couple of different things. One, I'm just inventing my own spleen, which is fun and gratifying and totally selfish. So uh, thank you for indulging me. But I think another thing I'm doing is offering a, offering to everybody 
who is not Ben Lerner, everybody who is not Kava Akbar, because I think the, the likelihood that Ben Lerner or Kava Akbar will hear any of this is near zero. And the likelihood that it could in any way damage their careers is absolutely zero. So I, I feel more comfortable taking on people like that because they are very successful and because I, I can't, I have no interest in uh, in bringing them down and I, and I don't think I have any ability to do that. But I have felt many times and continue to feel a, a little bit lost and a little bit alone when seeing certain work praised very highly and very consistently that I find really unimpressive. And I think it can begin to make one feel a little bit insane. So when I say that I don't really think there's that much there with a poem like The Lights or with uh, uh, Akbar's poetry, I, I'm really speaking to everybody but Lerner everybody but Akbar, everybody who, especially everybody who might think, well, I don't really get what the big deal is, but everybody seems to think they're great. What I don't want to do, what I have no interest in doing, is telling anybody who genuinely enjoys their poetry that they are wrong to do that. I really don't begrudge anybody your guilty or non-guilty pleasures. If you love Billy Conlon's poetry, I have no... <laughs> I, I, I have no argument with you. I have no uh, uh, beef with you. I, I've enjoyed a lot of Billy Collins poetry. If you love uh, spoken word, that's great. I, I'm all for genuine enjoyment. You know, I, I, I think that when the, in criticism, the, your, you know, my compass always has to be pleasure. It has to start with pleasure with somebody's pleasure at something. If it doesn't, then what's the fucking point? So I, if you genuinely enjoy Ben Lerner's poetry, I, I have no interest in telling you that you shouldn't. But, you know, I will say reading, for example, uh, Kevin Young's and Jesse Nathan's accounts of, say, Akbar's poetry, I, I didn't get the impression that I was reading... A, I didn't get the impression that some that this person had really enjoyed a work of poetry and then felt a need to express that enjoyment, to, to suggest that someone else might experience it too. I got the impression that they were sort of going through the motions of blurbing at length a, the poetry of a, of a, of a much-celebrated poet in terms that would get everybody nodding without making anybody think too hard. I, I say that with well, a great deal of respect for Kevin Young uh, as a poet. And, and you know, in some cases, as a, as a reader, I think he, his, his intro to the, to the selected Berryman is, is, quite, is quite fine. And by the way, another thing I really hope for in this podcast, and we're getting so in the fucking weeds, but why not? Um, that's what podcasts are for, right? Something I really, really hope is that if you listen to this, you find it easy to dismiss some of the things I say while maybe finding other things useful or at least entertaining. My dad <laughs> took me to task 
for saying pronunciation doesn't matter, which I've said on a couple of episodes. And I'll say it again, pronunciation doesn't matter. And again, if we ever, if I ever do sell out, if we ever do have Slee Ricketts uh, t-shirts, pronunciation doesn't matter is going on at least one of them. But he, he said, well, don't, you don't mean that. You don't really mean pronunciation doesn't matter. What you mean is what you should say, what should go on your t-shirts. He said, what you should say is mispronunciation matters less than misuse, which is uh, far, far more accurate. That's far closer to what I actually believe, but it's also a thousand percent less entertaining than just getting to say pronunciation doesn't matter on a podcast. So I, I hope that many of the things I say you are able to shrug off painlessly uh, or, and, and maybe find some others valuable. That's how I read everything I read. That's how I listen to everything I listen to is with the with a, with a feeling of great liberty to dismiss or embrace anything said. Uh, which is not to say, you know, as, as Jonathan <laughs> reminded me, if, I, if, if, uh, if you find yourself leaving almost everything and taking almost nothing, it may be time to, to stop, uh, to, to unsubscribe. So uh, that, that is what I hope here. Um, I, I hope that none of this is, I certainly don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Again, not because I don't think, not, not because I think I've said untrue or false things about you know these writers, but because I, I don't want to hurt people's feelings. I don't want to. Uh, I do not want to be the cranky William Logan of podcasting. As much respect as I have for William Logan, and as I've said before, yes, eventually I will get there. <laughs> but I don't want to do a podcast that's just bile. I was a little tired before the one that came, but uh, right before Shashi. I was a little tired when I recorded that one, and I was a lot crankier than I would normally be. Uh, so, you know, I, I definitely will, I'm sure, continue to rant, but I hope I'm also doing some things other than that. So, finally, to get to the trickiest and most interesting of Andrew's points, and the one on which I have least made up my mind, there's this question of tradition. So I'll read just again, I'll read Andrew's word on this. He says, he says, uh, I understand learners working in a different tradition than you and that you might reject this tradition, but it's still a tradition. And it strikes me as willfully ignorant to pretend that he's just spewing lines out at random. So we talked about the at, ra the at random part, but just this tradition thing. I think to, to try to give the strongest version of this argument, uh, you know, I, I think there's some real... There's some real logic to the suggestion that, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of poetry. There's so many different kinds of poetry that, that we might not even, you know, it might be hard to get people, to get anybody to agree that everything that is being called poetry today is in fact poetry. There, there are these camps and these groups and schools and movements and traditions are so disparate in places that they might as well be different art forms entirely. And if you're going to, if you're going to get somebody to uh, analyze or critique a given work, why would you want to bring somebody in who has very little experience with that style, with that mode? Why not get somebody who's steeped in it, who knows it backwards and forwards, who's very familiar with it and therefore better equipped to 
recognize the choices being made and their significance. I think there is a real compelling logic to that argument, but I resist it. As I said, I haven't totally made up my mind on this, but I do think of, um, so a couple things came to mind. One of them was a, an, a review that came out in the July 2013 issue of Poetry Magazine by, it was written by Michael Robbins, who's a poet I have, uh, um, interestingly, I, I really, really intensely dislike his poetry. But then, uh, as Eric Smith pointed out, uh, editor of uh, the poetry editor, he's so managing editor, one of the editors of the Swanee Review, um, wonderful guy, terrific poet, and very good magazine. As he pointed out to me, Robbins underwent in mid-career a radical change in his style of poetry. The poems he writes now are wildly different in style, in structure, in tradition, in tone, in voice. They're, they're it's almost like the poems of a totally different person. I, I, I want to spend some more time with them because I, I got the impression I would like them a lot more than, than the poems he got famous for. But uh, he's, a, you know, he's a curious case. I, I, every other thing I read by him, I totally disagree with. But this was, I think, a very smart essay. And it was one that excited a lot of formal world people. There were a lot of formal poets, uh, new formalist poets, uh, narrative poetry people, a lot of people from the more aesthetically conservative end of the poetry spectrum went crazy for this review. They lost their shit. They loved it. And I was, you know, in, I was one of them, though I, I, I think there's maybe a little nuance to be seen here. So he was reviewing uh, a, an anthology. He, specifically, he was reviewing Postmodern American Poetry, colon, a Norton anthology, edited by Paul Hoover. So he he reviewed this enormous book. It's like, a, I think, 11 or 1200 page book, uh, you know, which he understandably gripes about a little bit. But he here's here's sort of the the real meat of his argument. I, I've, I've compressed this a little bit. And, um, and but this these are this is, this is all from the first larger chunk of his review, just to give you a sense of his argument. He, he begins the review by talking about a number of different anthologies uh, of, of the, of the postmodern or of the avant-garde or of uh, what, what one of them refers to as the, I think what Marjorie Perloff refers to as the other tradition. And he, he says basically that Hoover's Norton is the survivor. The, the, the many have come and gone, but this one is, is the one that for, for the time being at least is is making the uh, is is laying down the official record, but he, he refers to some of the other editors uh, in, in this in this excerpt. So he says, Hoover's Norton is the clear victor, the anthology that will define, for better or worse, classroom dissemination of the other tradition for a long time to come. But let's consider this tradition a bit more closely. A good deal has been written about the sociology of canon formation and literary anthologization. I don't want to recapitulate this work here, but it's important to note that the premise from which each of these post-Allen, I think that's Donald Allen, each of these, the premise from which each of these post-Allen anthologies proceeds is flawed. 
the editors imagine that what they're doing is collating the productions of alternative traditions that already exist within the poetic field that subvert and threaten the field's dominant modes of writing and thinking. They think that they are compiling all of the poems that have worked against the dominant tradition. I'm paraphrasing him a little bit to clarify. Uh, and then he goes on to say, each of the above projects is explicitly predicated upon the notion that there is a mainstream, an establishment, usually figured as academic, against which the anthologized poets are bravely swimming. So, so these purport to be anthologies of the poets working against this dominant, established, academic, mainstream tradition. Hoover tells us that this anthology hopes to assert that avant-garde poetry endures in its resistance to dominant and received modes of poetry. That's, uh, that's, that's uh, Robbins quoting Hoover. Here's Robbins again. In fact, it is closer to the truth to say that this anthology and others like it have created the other traditions of postmodern American poetry, avant-garde poetry, outsider poetry, new American poetry, and the like. If the avant-garde historically represents a struggle against the institutional forms of, of cultural domination, in the case of dominant and received modes of poetry, these must include the major journals. Right? If, if we're talking about the dominant modes of poetry, that's got to be the big journals. These must include the major journals, English and creative writing departments, and publishing houses. What must we conclude about an avant-garde that is completely absorbed by and into those very institutions, right? Of course, all of this avant-garde postmodern poetry, if you are familiar with the big poetry presses, with the big poetry magazines, with the big creative writing departments, you're familiar that all of them espouse this same poetry. All of them promote it. All of them, are, they, that's where those poets are, uh, have their tenures. Both Guillory and Golding, some of the other editors, both Guillory and Golding argue persuasively that canons are made in and by the university. Their mode of transmission is the syllabus. That's how canons get established, the syllabus. And these days, you're as likely to see Ray Armentrout as Mary Oliver on a course syllabus in contemporary poetry or in the pages of The New Yorker. So uh, I think a lot of, as I said, a lot of formal, aesthetically conservative, not politically conservative, this is, again, aesthetically, aesthetic conservatism in poetry is often conflated with political conservatism. It, it, it should not be, though it has not been for no reason. A lot of people really uh, loved this essay, and I think they loved it, or this review, they, they loved it in many cases because it seemed to disparage what they saw as the true mainstream, the true dominant mode of poetry. And, you know, in fairness to that sort of resentful uh, schadenfreude, in, in fairness to that feeling, if you submit poetry widely today, then it is fairly obvious, I think, uh, to anybody who's tried, it's fairly obvious that it is a lot harder to, for example, publish 
poems in regular meter and rhyme than poems in free verse. It is much harder to publish poems in meter and rhyme, I'll say it again, than in free verse. Though, if you were listening to this podcast, I will bet you $100 that you already knew that. Uh, unless you're in my family, in which case, uh, bet's off. And I, so I, I get the appeal of, of, uh, of waving this review as a kind of battle flag. I, I definitely get that. And I definitely felt some of the same shiver of uh, pleasure at seeing the brave postmodern advance guard brought to its knees. But I think the reason I don't feel totally satisfied with that rhetorical conclusion is the same reason I don't feel satisfied with with Andrew's suggestion that I abstain from you know criticizing a tradition I don't really belong to and I think it's because I don't really want to belong to a tradition you know I I think that I have certain limitations as a poet and certainly at this point some inclinations and some decisions and some tendencies but I certainly hope that those don't then determine my limitations as a reader. I mean, God knows I like a lot of avant-garde movies. I like a lot of experimental or conceptual painting. It's really easy, honestly, for me to like that because the, the stakes are low. My brother gets furious <laughs> when he looks at some of the stuff, but I can just enjoy it. And I actually feel that way about some uh, you know, self-styled experimental poetry. I, you know, again, I think the, the compass has to be pleasure. I want to be able to enjoy all kinds of writing, whether or not I can write anything like it. And I steal from all kinds of writing. I mean, I steal from novels. I steal from essays. I steal from avant-garde poetry. I steal from religious poetry and religious scripture. I certainly steal from other poets who write mostly in meter and rhyme with mostly complete sentences and sort of an argument that, uh, that retains a, a familiar rhetorical shape from beginning to end and that you know, nods frequently to figures familiar from the Greco-Roman, Judeo-Christian line of cultural tradition. Yeah, I, I definitely borrow from all of those folks too. But I want to be able to read catholically, small c, as well as big c, I guess. Uh, but you know, I want to be able to read everything. I want to be able to write as broadly as I can write. And I don't feel, uh, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to decide what tradition I'm part of. Partly because, you know, and I think uh, even looking at something like Eliot's tradition and the individual talent, which you know you might argue is a is a you know is a fairly conservative document, making a conservative argument about the nature of tradition. What he really says in that is that every great new writer revises the tradition. He reorders the writers who came before him, and and he himself will be reordered by the writers who come after. You know, the truth is that every great work, every great work of writing was at some point avant-garde in the sense that it was doing something somewhat new. I mean, greatness requires some significant element of newness. 
And I would say every good piece of writing was at some point experimental. Because if you're not trying anything out, then what the fuck are you doing? You're certainly not gonna write anything interesting. You will probably write something corny. And, and you know, there's, so, so um, the, the, uh, the curmudgeon I have referred to many times in this podcast now, Dave Smith in our um, old writing program, he liked to quote a line of Robert Penn Warren's. He used to say that, uh, that I, I actually have never been able to find this anywhere in Warren's writing. So God knows if he actually said it, but it's such a fucking good line. So Dave liked to quote Warren as saying, experiment is an elite word for failure. Experiment is an elite word for failure. It's a killer line. It's a good line. <laughs> now, it's very mean. It seems very dismissive. It seems very snotty and even uh, myopic, even, even closed-minded. But I think that there is a maybe a more charitable reading of it that, that I've found to be the most useful one personally, which is that anytime you try to do anything in writing, anytime you try to do anything that is not a sure thing, which is to say anything that has not been done verbatim before, you are experimenting, you are trying something out. And if it works, if it succeeds, Nobody calls it an experiment. You don't announce that your new work is experimental if it succeeds, right? I think what Warren was maybe getting at was that the works that need to be labeled as experimental are the ones that didn't succeed because they need a reason why they're so fucking confusing or a reason why they're jarring or unpleasant or I don't get it. You know, that's, that's maybe my, my, you know, roughly charitable reading. But as I said, I, I have not at all settled my thoughts on this question of tradition. And I don't have an absolute counter argument to Andrew's uh, argument about the tradition. I can only say I, I want to keep reading and thinking and talking broadly. Oh, uh, Jonathan did have one more note he wanted me to, to mention, in fairness, you know, at this point, a couple few episodes ago, I, I, I said that I thought there was something more to be said about incoherent poetry and about Isaire's argument about the spectrum of coherence that stretches from the boredom to uh, excessive strain, maybe, in, in the reading experience. I, I, do, I do think there's something else to be said, and I, I don't think it is about incoherence intrinsically. But I guess what I mean is that I think there is a lot of poetry today that is incoherent in part. And that the problem with it is not just that it exists somewhere far on the spectrum, that there is a difference essentially of kind and not just of degree with some of these poems, not with all poems that have any degree of incoherence, but with some of these poems, I think there is actually something significant missing. And that, is a thought I will return to, but not fucking tonight. Since I've been talking so much about 
incoherence as a problem in poetry. I have tried a little bit in recent weeks to make a point of noting the existence of some poems that use incoherence, I think, productively. The Donald Hall poem without is an example of that. And the poem I'm going to read tonight is another, I would say. This is a poem, it's the, it's the, it's not the title poem, but it is the poem that produces the title, the title phrase of Shane McRae's most recent book, Sometimes I Never Suffered. The title obviously contains a, a sort of a contradiction, and it's one that sits at the heart of the poem itself. So I'm going to read it, and I, I'm, it's, it's a fairly short poem. It's a sonnet. So I'm going to read it and talk about it a little bit, and maybe read it one more time for good measure. So the poem is called Jim Limber on Continuity in Heaven. Jim Limber was a, a a free mixed race man who was the he is discussed in the book he's a figure throughout the book and he is he's presented as the adopted son of jefferson davis the president of the confederate states of america this poem appears toward the end of the book and this is a poem spoken from heaven so jim limber on continuity in heaven I ride the train for nothing sometimes, just because I can. Because I couldn't once, but I don't know if I'm supposed to count that. If this life is more of what life was or something new. I never suffered on the train I ride, but I ain't suffered at the hands of every white man I met and I still understood who was white and who was something white and altogether black at the same time. It wasn't nothing in the man or me, but something in the life we shared. But I mean share like prisoners, share loneliness. I ride the train now like I never suffered on a train. Sometimes I never suffered in my life. So as I said, it's a sonnet. It is in uh, the, not all of the lines are in iambic pentameter, but iambic pentameter is the standard line of the poem. And as with sort of some of the opening lines, say of proof rocks, some, so you get the impression that the lines stretch out a little long and then come back a little short so that they always seem to be returning like a rubber band to that pentameter length. And the 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 uh the rhymes are very slant and in some cases it's it's um the tension between consonants and assonants makes for an, an ambiguity even in which lines are rhyming as in the 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 opening stanza the end words of which are just once count and was there there are a few different possible lines of uh there are a few possible schemes you could draw to that there's no punctuation really other than you know, hyphens but he does and, and apostrophes but he does provide little spaces between sometimes clauses or, or new sentences uh within the line so there there are sort of caesuras and there is some indication of, of how the syntax is meant to be read but of course the line breaks themselves provide kind of alternate readings 
of some of these lines. Even that first line, I ride the train for nothing sometimes just. The just is, you know, is either a word throwing away the explanation that is to follow, or it stands in for something right. Right either, you know, in measure, it's, it, as in, it is justified on the page, or just maybe in a, in a larger sense. So th there's, I'd say, like an enormous amount of double entendre and of loaded line breaks and loaded even word breaks. I, I still under line break stood who was white. Understood ends up functioning both literally and figuratively. But the ambiguity in the single phrase that, that ends the poem and that gives the book its title, Sometimes I Never Suffered, is one that I think opens up the difficulty of the account that the poem tries to offer of heaven as well as of life. Right? If heaven is a reward for a life well lived, then even a life that was terrible to live is always bound in some way to the afterlife. And if you are the same person in heaven that you were on earth, then is heaven more of your life? Or is it a new thing, separate from your life? You know, he says, I never suffered on a train, but of course he was, he was never allowed to ride a train. You know, if there's any poem this reminds me of from start to finish, it's another sonnet by a poet who who's really best known for writing in very free verse. That is James Wright, uh, whom I made fun of a few episodes ago for his uh, pioneering use of the inspirational non sequitur volta at the end of the poem. But he has a poem called St. Judas, which is a sonnet spoken by the apostle Judas after having betrayed Jesus. That is, it is spoken with the full knowledge that he's going to hell and that there's nothing he can do, that he's, he's, he's committed the greatest crime in history. And the, the, the sonnet is the story of a, of a, a sort of a, it's a good Samaritan episode where, where Judas saves a man from a terrible beating, tends to him. And the poem ends with a line that is echoed to my ear very much in the opening line of this poem. That poem, which ends with Judas performing this, this act of unequivocal good, which he knows can do him no good, can, can save him from not one instant of eternal suffering in hell. The last line of St. Judas is, I held the man for nothing in my arms. And, and I really can't help but hear that in, I ride the train for nothing sometimes, just because I can. The, the, the play with incoherence here, the, the moments where there's a contradiction, where there's a tension within the line, where it's unclear exactly in what sense a word is being used in one moment, or even how, whether it's unclear whether the speaker can say with any authority how the word is being used. I would say that this, to me, the test of whether a lyric poem is doing its job is whether the poem produces in the reader a feeling that rings true to some experience in life. And I don't know what it's like to live in heaven. I don't think any of us does. For that matter, I don't know what it's like to 
be a mixed race man living in you know the South before and after the Civil War. Or, but I think that there you know there was a, an argument a number of years ago about the word relatable, and and this I think was mostly this mostly came up in fiction. I think everybody who teaches creative writing hates the word relatable for one reason or another, but it was attacked for uh, a, a while because it seemed to suggest that works of literature ought to make them, ought to accommodate themselves to the existing knowledge and experience of the readers, and maybe in particular to you know, middle-class white readers. And that's obviously not, uh, not a very good standard for what literature, literature should be. And relatable is, is an ugly and obnoxious word uh, anyway. But I do think, and this, is, this actually touches on what I want to get back to in another upcoming episode in that Isaire article, the part of what allows us in reading to gain an understanding of an alien experience is a common sense of humanity. So I don't, I don't think that literature, and I don't think that this poem, needs to orient itself to the experiences of, of a certain kind of reader. But I do think that part of what makes this poem so affecting is that it makes itself available to any thoughtful human reader who's, who's willing to imagine himself into a life not his own. So when I talk about incoherence, and I suspect that even the invocation of the word incoherence is going to drive McRae a little insane if he hears this, because the poem is, of course, very carefully and thoughtfully made. But I guess what I mean when I talk about the productive use of incoherence is really an evocation of the feeling we have in life often of the uncertainty of what something means, the uncertainty of what something might be, and maybe an uncertainty that there is any, it is possible to know. So I don't think this is a poem that dabbles in incoherence in the sense that it is a little incoherent or it is sometimes incoherent, but that it uses the experience of a misunderstanding or a delayed understanding or a partial understanding or a split understanding with those line breaks or those double entendres or those you know, seeming contradictions or paradoxes. I think the real value of these flickers of incoherence in a poem or even a larger pattern of incoherence, as in Donald Hall's Without, or some of Joshua Beckman's mantra poems, is, is not simply to leave the reader in confusion, but to use those experiences of momentary or partial confusion to bring about a deeper coherence, a deeper understanding between the poet and the reader, even if only for the duration of 14 lines. I'm going to stop there, read the poem one more time, and then say goodnight. This is Jim Limber on Continuity in Heaven by Shane McRae. I ride the train for nothing sometimes, just because I can. Because I couldn't once. But 
I don't know if I'm supposed to count that. If this life is more of what life was or something new. I never suffered on the train I ride, but I ain't suffered at the hands of every white man I met, and I still understood who was white and who was something white and altogether black at the same time. It wasn't nothing in the man or me, but something in the life we shared. But I mean share like prisoners share loneliness. I ride the train now like I never suffered on a train. Sometimes I never suffered in my life. That was Jim Limber on Continuity in Heaven by Shane McRae. And the, I should say this, uh, sorry, the, the poem originally appeared in The New Yorker and then came out, it came out last year. And Sometimes I Never Suffered, it appears toward the end of that book. So thank you, as always, for listening. And please do write in. As I said, I got a lot of correspondence. And just to clarify, I, I do try to make sure that the people who write in are, are comfortable with my getting into that stuff on the podcast. If you know, There are, are also people who write to me and ask me not to talk about it. So feel free to do that as well. I don't need to share all of it. I'm always interested, however, in hearing from y'all. So thank you for listening. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then.